Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Marine Retired Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer, and we're going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, right right up to two seconds ago, <laughs> we are still looking at headlines. Thanks for joining us, Hal. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Sherry. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we've been texting back and forth with things that are popping up in the news, and is there any truth to the coup that they're talking about? Well, it's uh, it's almost uh, I would say it's almost an aspirational thing. Um, the, uh, the the major general that runs uh, Ukrainian intelligence uh, put out this statement, and he says there's a coup underway to remove Putin. But then, as you go into it, he says uh, it'll probably happen sometime around midsummer or August. So it doesn't sound like anybody's kicking in the doors or or hauling them out into the yard or anything. It, it's more of a uh, it was more. It was more within the context of saying the war will be ended by the. He thinks the war will be done. Russia will be defeated by the end of the year. So it was. It was more of a projection thing. Although the fact that he used the term coup uh, certainly got global press attention. Uh, the reality is, uh, Putin politically, there, there's all the indicators that he's in a lot of trouble. And uh, certainly last Monday, when he, uh, you know, when he did the victory day speech and he, you know, admitted that there were huge casualties on the Russian side. And, and also he backed off of saying a lot of things that, that we're wondering if he was going to say, for example, declaring war in Ukraine, which would have led to a national mobilization or, or trying to declare victory in Ukraine, which I think even at that point, despite the huge Russian propaganda machine, they said, look, there's only so much we can do. We can't really make that one sound true. Uh, He backed off of those things and didn't say it. So uh, there is a lot of indicators that, yeah, his his power is eroding. And uh, and, and a lot of the people around him, very senior level in the security service, the FSB, in the Ministry of Defense, you know, he's removed them. In fact, there's a report out this week that that, uh, General Gerasimov, the – the uh, uh, chief of the uh, armed forces may be under house arrest right now, which is that that's the equivalent to, to General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, so that gives you a sense of just how politically tectonic things are moving uh, within Moscow. I know that uh, Sweden and Finland have decided to apply for NATO and now Turkey is saying I object. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. just like, come on. <laughs> you know, you know, it's interesting. Erdogan just a little bit of a fly in the ointment for NATO uh, across the board. Sometimes he does stuff that was like that's great, and other times we just scratch our heads. And, um, and of course, Turkey's always had that. You know, Turkey is a unique NATO member. Is is it in Europe or is it in Asia? Right. And the answer is yes, you know, <laughs> geographically speaking. Um, and and or is it or is it really more part of the Middle East? And again, the answer is yes, uh, uh, geographically speaking. Uh, but you know, he's kind of he is, despite the fact that they hold something that looks like elections, he has basically positioned himself as uh, effectively a dictator uh, in, in Turkey. And and with that. He also is doing things to bolster his position, uh, which he, as near as we can tell, never plans to give up. And so a lot of what you're hearing with the Sweden-Finland thing is really for a domestic audience in Turkey. You know, he kept bringing up the Kurds. He kept bringing up uh, more violent, uh, you know, Kurdish movements, you know, that, that they certainly assess as terrorist groups like the PKK. And saying that, you know, that Finland and Sweden uh, cannot be allowing these Kurds to do this stuff. He, he also pointed to a, uh, a cleric uh, in the U.S., which has also been a big issue for him. He thinks that, that he was in charge, that he was connected to the coup or, or the attempted coup that took place in Turkey. Uh, and that's a whole other discussion as to whether that was a coup or whether it was a manufactured coup. Uh, experts are still kind of trying to figure that one out. But... Uh, uh, but, but basically, he's he's playing to a domestic audience. 
So when he's doing that, he's just saying, hey, you know, I may be in a position here where I could get some concessions that would look good and I can come out looking strong and forceful and influential on the world scene, which will play well with my domestic base in uh, Turkey. And I think that's what you're seeing. And, I, and I'm sure they're all working. Interestingly, he was talking about the Kurds in relation to Finland and Sweden and, and the, the country in Scandinavia that actually does have a little bit more of an open entree with, uh, with some of the more extreme Kurdish movements is actually Denmark, which is actually part of NATO already. So, so what you, what you, and, and of course the U S is, is where the cleric is that he, that he wants, uh, extradited to Turkey sit. So, you know, he's saying this about Finland, Sweden, but it's basically just a, it's an opportunity for him to do that. I'm hoping they can, diplomatically kind of work through this with uh, either, either something where they give him something or, or that he just moves past it. Well, I was wondering too, because they were saying that uh, Sweden will probably be entered into NATO on Monday. It's, How come they're well, not helping Ukraine? Who's been uh, begging? Oh, oh, they, they, they are. Uh, Sweden, Sweden actually has been sending a lot of weapons to Ukraine. Um, they, uh, I, I got to tell you, I, I, you know, to, I, I, I used to live in Denmark a long, long time ago and um, during the Cold War. And I, I just have to tell you that the, the shift, you know, Sweden has only been neutral for about 200 years. That's all. Yeah. So, so for them to join NATO, to join a military alliance, this is such a huge change. Finland, um, you know, they've been neutral uh, ostensibly since, you know, that of course they were invaded by the Soviet Union back in 1939 and, and fought them to a standstill as well. Um, they also, uh, you know, were, uh, uh, you know, they've, they've already said, hey, we're, we're going this direction. Sweden has been saying we're going to go this direction if Finland goes this direction. So Monday, you're probably going to see the same thing from Sweden that you just saw from Finland. They plan to extradite it. Uh, most most everything I'm hearing sounds like this thing could be in place by June, sometime in June. And uh, and NATO has actually said that they've cleared out office space and they have desks assigned and everything for Finnish and Swedish officers. Uh, wow. So that that tells you how fast they're uh, they're moving on this entire thing. That's impressive, but they should do that for Ukraine too. <laughs> well, uh, I you know I. I, I will say this, all right. Um, you know, uh, Macron this week uh, kind of threw a little bit of a uh, a monkey wrench into the uh, into Ukraine becoming a European Union member, um, basically saying, "Look, they have to meet all the requirements. We got to agree this stuff." And it's true, the European Union is a very complex bureaucracy, to say the least. That's one of the reasons that Britain pulled out was they said. We're tired of dealing with this because they didn't. They felt it was a bureaucracy that was not really oriented towards British interests. Um, so there are a lot of things uh, dealing with trade, dealing with agriculture, manufacturing, services, you name it. It's a very complex bureaucracy. So he said, look, they're going to have to do this. It may take a long time, alluding to it may take up to a decade before Ukraine comes into the EU. And and everyone has assumed that that. Ukraine going into the European Union would precede Ukraine going into NATO. As this war with Russia has has drug on longer and longer, and and Zelensky actually made uh, overture saying, "Look, we'll stay out of NATO. You know, if you if you just sit down and talk." And as Russia has pretty much rebuffed all attempts for serious, you know, concrete negotiations, uh, and instead has just kept throwing resources trying to trying to destroy Ukraine and take Ukrainian territory. I, I think that whole NATO joining NATO, you know, the Ukraine not joining NATO, I should say ship, it may have sailed already. Okay. And I think that, uh, that when this thing is resolved, there will be a move to uh, get Ukraine into uh, NATO sooner rather than later. And, and at that point, we're, we're probably looking at a uh, militarily, uh, debilitated Russia as well, because uh, they're taking enormous losses there, and I don't see them able to rebuild their conventional military forces uh, very quickly after this whole thing is done. 
I noticed that the Ukraine has started uh, war crime trials. Yes, they have. They have a. There's a. Uh, uh, interesting as a Russian sergeant, and he admits that he. Uh, I think he he murdered a civilian under orders. It's a, it's an interesting trial. Uh, he has assigned legal counsel from Ukraine. It's not clear if he might. It, it wasn't clear to me. I haven't seen this morning, but as of yesterday, it wasn't clear if he was going to uh, plead guilty to doing this. And it really brings up a lot of issues in terms of this is Ukraine doing this internally. It's not the International Court of The Hague. That's what it's I was not wondering. The International Tribunal. Yeah. Um, it, it just is interesting to see this. It's, uh, I, I think the evidence is, is fairly overwhelming. Uh, to say the very least, um, the fact that they're going through this, um, it's not completely unprecedented, but it's a little unusual. To, to do stuff like this, he's going to definitely be, you know, held prisoner till till probably the end of the war. And uh, but you know, this trial may may be followed by another trial that they do on the international scene. You know, they're working out all the issues right now on how they're going to deal the, deal with the war crimes. And certainly, Ukraine's interests would be if the war crimes trials are done in a multilateral, you know, globally or internationally recognized. Uh, situation and uh well that's and when one country does that i hate to say it but that sounds a lot like things that we've seen that have really irritated us in the past where um you know other countries whether it's russia china north korea they hold these trials that we don't really think are are fair trials i think the ukrainian jurisprudence system is probably you know far superior anything that those other countries would do and i think they're trying to to do something in a fair manner they're also there's a heck of an impetus uh for the ukrainian government to address these war crimes and these atrocities so that's part of the timing on this as well is to get this thing underway but i think the the end state goal would be to do something with the international court and uh but it's going to be a huge backlog i mean right now they're talking I, I, you know, depending on which one you look at, I've heard 60 suspects. I've heard up to 700 suspects oh my God. that they're looking at for thousands of war crimes. And uh, I think it's going to get actually bigger than that. I would not be surprised if by the time it's done, we're looking at thousands of Russian soldiers and probably the entire chain of command up to Putin that will be indebted for war crimes. How long does a process like that take? Are we, are we talking Jerry? decades? Hello? Oh, hold on, Sherry. I got a little audio issue here. Okay. Sherry, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Sorry. My had a little audio issue there. Sorry. How? Okay. The process like that does it take decades? How long does something like that take? If you're talking, you know, seven hundred people ish to go through. It may tr- take. It may take a long time. It'll take years. You know, it took it took a long time with the uh, after World War II. It took uh, quite a bit of time with the uh, trials in Japan and Germany. Uh, Japan actually took uh, longer than Germany. The Nuremberg trials is the one we all point to. Um, but the trials in, in, in Japan actually took uh, longer. So it will take a while. And, and it may we may be talking, you know, several years. You know, uh, after World War II, uh, going after the Nazis, you know, they were doing that for decades after World War II because they yeah. had to track down all the Nazis. And I think we're going to have the same issue with Russian soldiers and other Russian officials that we may have indictments that sit out there for decades. And, you know, we'll have something like an Interpol red notice out there on these guys. And the moment they step into a country where we can take them to custody and extradite them, we will. But it may take a very long time. Okay, you say extradite them to where? Uh, probably to the Hague. Okay. Um, yeah. Probably to the International Court. Uh, again, and, and nothing set in stone. If that's the, if that's where they decide to do it, um, I, I don't know. You but know, they can't just ignore it. it because some of the things that I've been hearing is it's just horrific. Oh, it's uh, it's horrendous, and uh, I, I I I I would find it. I would be stunned 
if there was ever an attempt to ignore what's been happening, but it just, it can't be, you know, um, you know, I, we all saw that video that, that CNN posted or put out this week, uh, which was security video, CCTV video from a, um, from a facility uh, near Keith. And it was from early in the invasion, but where you saw the owner and a, and a, and a security guard at a, at a facility, they actually went out to greet the Russian soldiers as they came in. They talked to them. They were searched by the Russian soldiers. Um, they smoked cigarettes with them. And then it's the uh, two Ukrainian um, um, citizens walked away back into the facility. The Russians came around the corner and shot them in the back. <gasps> Full-blooded murder. And, uh, and that was all over, uh, posted out there. That's just that's just one that's been caught in video in that fashion. You know, we have uncovered, or I should say, the Ukrainians have uncovered, you know, hundreds of very clear cases of torture, uh, you know, execution. Many times with their with with uh, Ukrainians having their hands tied behind their backs and 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 basically shot in the back or shot in the back of the head. Very clear executions that took place. Uh, tort, you know, evidence of torture, and of course, all the, you know, all the reports of rape and everything else, which it, I have to say, it looks a lot like the uh, Soviet army of World War II in terms of the conduct of the soldiers involved. Do you think those were orders, or are these just, you know, people going off on their own tangents and doing what they think they want to do and that what they can well, get away with? That's what's interesting is this case in uh, that they're they, they're currently trying in in Keith. In that case, the sergeant, the Russian sergeant, said he was actually following orders. He was actually under orders to do that. And and there are there is a principle, uh, you know, uh, within the military of responsibility, command responsibility. So you know, if if the commanders are allowing this to happen. You know, if they're setting a command climate where this is okay, if they're if they're not taking you know if if they're not taking all the necessary measures to prevent stuff like this from happening, uh, the chain of command can be held responsible regardless. So, even if even if soldiers were not even if soldiers weren't ordered specifically to kill that civilian, uh, if they can go back and say, yeah, but you know they allowed this sort of stuff to happen, the officers in charge can be held accountable. So, well, yeah, they should be. And, and that goes all the way up to Putin, by the way. So, yeah. So I, 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 I heard they, I've been out of town for a few days this week, so I'm a little behind on what's going on. I heard that um, there was another ship, Russian ship, that was set on fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, for, for, a Navy, for a Navy that has no ships afloat right now, the Ukrainians are, are really are really very capable. Um, they're, they're hitting, they're hitting these Russian ships with, uh, with any ship missiles and with, uh, with drone missiles fired from drones. Uh, last night it's either eight or nine Russian ships that have been seriously damaged or sunk. Of course, the most famous one was the Moskva, the, uh, the flagship of the, the Russian Black Sea fleet. Uh, big heavy cruiser, and you know, probably the one of the, if not the most modern uh, ship that the Russians had. That of course, that ship sunk. Uh, the latest one was a uh, logistics ship, and I I haven't seen anything that says it sunk, but everything to include video indicates it was very very seriously damaged. Uh, massive fire on board, and I would say that ship's taken out of commission. And when these ships are damaged, um, because of all the supply chain issues that they have and all the logistics issues, uh, it's not something where these ships, even if they bring them back to port, that they can put them back in service anytime soon. If they're seriously damaged, they're probably just going to sit there, probably sit there for at least the duration of the war, and probably just a ship that's waiting to be scrapped at some point in the future. So, you know, what's interesting is, remember remember Snake Island? Yeah. The, the island where the... Uh, yeah, that was that was the Moskva that actually issued that that order for the uh, 
for the Ukrainians on Snake Island to surrender. It's a really small island. I think it's like 46 acres. It's a big chunk of rock that sits out there in the Black Sea, not far from Odessa. But if you control Snake Island, you basically, it's strategic in terms of being able to control access to the port of Odessa. So that's that's the importance of Snake Island. Um, The Russians took it, and there really was no way for the Ukrainians to actually defend that rock, uh, that island. But but they have made the Russians consistently pay over and over again for holding that island. They've taken out at least one or two anti-air defense systems on the island. They hit a helicopter when it was landing on the island. That was a rather spectacular thing. That was in video. I think that was a drone strike. Awesome. They've hit multiple multiple ships that have been tied up around the island have been taken out. Uh, it looked like they hit a command post on the island uh, with one strike. So it's like the Russians own it, but it, it's kind of like almost this big target sitting out in the Black Sea. And the Ukrainians go out there and, and hit it over and over again. So they're making the Russians pay for, for holding that island a lot. And and this logistics ship was just the latest in a series of things tied to that island uh, in terms of what the Russians have had to uh, incur as, as far as holding that island and trying to use that island. Do you think the Ukrainians will take it back? Well, I think at some point they will. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very confident. Uh, the Ukrainians... Uh, going to the south is going to be probably the last part of the war. Um, you know, I mean, the, the big thing was yesterday, uh, a number a number of people looking at this, but, but particularly the Institute for the Study of War, which is probably one of the best open source uh, intelligence uh, 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 resources out there in, in looking at the Ukraine conflict, has, has said, Basically, the war, the Battle of Kharkiv has been won in the same way that they declared the Battle of Kiev had been won at some point. And the Russians were under tremendous pressure by the Ukrainians, have been withdrawing forces. And I've been watching this since literally last before last weekend. It looked like a lot of the Russian units weren't so much being pushed back as they were actually withdrawing those units. And it's the same the same sort of thing we saw around Kiev, where the Russian units were, were unable to conduct offensive, um, offensive uh, warfare. In other words, they couldn't go on the offense, and they would they would then go into the defense, but then they were unable to defend their positions, which left them the position a situation where either they get overrun, or they start to withdraw. And north of Kiev, the withdrawal turned into basically a strategic withdrawal where they pulled all their forces out of that entire area north of Kiev. And it looks like they're doing the same thing around uh, Kharkiv as well, which then starts to push south. Uh, it's, in the, it's in the eastern part of the country, but then starts to push south or southeast, uh, where you start seeing eventually they would, they would probably start pushing into the Donbass region itself, uh, which is that the two... Uh, oblasts or provinces that uh, Russia has declared as independent states that they intend to eventually incorporate into the Russian Federation. And the Ukrainians are moving that direction very quickly. In fact, I was just seeing this morning something I've been watching for a few days, which is uh, the Ukrainian forces are moving so quickly, there's a chance, there's a, a little, it's almost like a finger to the south, a city called Izium, and for a long time it was seen that the Russians might try to push down this uh, Izium axis to try and encircle Ukrainian forces that were kind of in a almost like a bulge uh, in the Russian lines, and so they wanted to encircle them and cut them off, and uh, that's kind of going the other way because the Ukrainians are cutting them off up north. There's a chance that the that the Ukrainians might cut off the, the Russian forces in that Izium uh, axis. And and there's estimates that up to 20,000 or more Russian troops might actually end up getting cut off from their supply lines. Uh, that's, that's a stunning reversal for the Russians. And then the question is, what are those troops going to do? Will those units try to fight their way out? Or I don't give know if up. they even have them or give up. 
And yeah. um, that's, it's, it, I have it to looks, say, this, yeah, it's like World War II stuff when you look at it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it sounds with um, the morale of the Russian military doesn't sound like it's, it's uh, what Putin expected. Exactly. I, yeah. It's just too bad. Okay. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Stay with us. Thank you for staying with us. Our guest today is Marine retired Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer. We're talking about Ukraine and the craziness that's going on over there. And John and I were just talking. John is our, he operates the board and turns off our mics if we don't say nice things about him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he he was just wondering, why is Putin continuing to do, and it's obviously a losing battle, why does he continue with this? Why doesn't it just stop? He's stuck. He's stuck. He, he, you know, he, yeah, if, if he, if he, if he admits defeat and pulls out, he's politically done for. And and he doesn't have the means to achieve victory. So he's 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 basically trapped himself. You know, and and so he's just gonna keep doing this as long as he can. What's interesting is um it's it's almost getting beyond anecdotal to uh sounding almost institutional within the Russian army. Is is troops, soldiers, even junior leaders, refusing to take their units into combat, or refusing to take their units or their personnel into a into a, Ukraine. a losing battle? And it, they they all recognize that this is it's it's a losing battle. It's a meat grinder in there. You know the Ukrainians are are fierce. Their 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 will to fight is extremely strong, and the Russians. You know, their tactics, everything. I mean, one of the things that the Russians, um, they just, they, you know, they have this very, very hierarchical system that stifles initiative at the tactical level. And so they will order uh, troops. This is what they did in World War II, but they had an enormous amount of uh, resources, particularly personnel, that they could throw in these battles. So they would have these rather lackluster tactics but they would simply overwhelm the German forces with mass. And, uh, and, and that's the way they kind of fought their way to Germany, was by overwhelming the German forces with sheer mass. Well, they don't have those, that, the, the troops in order to pull that off, and they've never adapted their doctrine to fit their reality. So you'll see these very uncoordinated things where the air operations... And even even down to the more tactical ground level, the the artillery and the and the tactical rockets are they're hitting things, but it's not in any coordinated fashion. And um, so, you know, the artillery will come in and cause a tremendous amount of devastation, but that doesn't necessarily tie into a significant maneuver on the ground. It's supposed to, but it doesn't. And then the air operations are almost on their own; they they go do their own thing. Their, their concept of close air support is very, very different from what we think of. And so, you know, one of the things they needed to do was to garner what we call air superiority um, early into the conflict. They've never been able to do that. Uh, even though they have, a, a, you know, on paper, they have this overwhelming superiority in, in air assets and should have been able to accomplish that. They can't. And I think it was just a couple of days ago, they went over 200 for the first time. 200 fixed-wing aircraft have been shot down by the Ukrainians. Uh, believe me, every pilot in the Russian Air Force recognizes that and, uh, and, and realizes the threat that they're under when they fly over Ukrainian airspace. And, and it's not getting any better for them because when the uh, U.K. started moving in those Starstreak manned portable air defense systems, uh, they're extremely capable. Uh, those missiles fly Mach 3.5. They're just, you know, in many cases, by the time you realize that a Star Street missile has been fired at an aircraft, the aircraft is already breaking up in the sky. That's how fast they are. Wow. And, and the Russian pilots, the Russian pilots know this. They, they, you know, if they come in close where they can actually hit targets, there's a very good chance that one of those missiles might be fired up at them 
And uh, by the time they realize that they're uh, that it's coming at them, it's too late. They can't do anything. So it, it gets into the psychology uh, of the pilot. So they tend to be very reticent to put themselves in danger. And the more reluctant they are, the less accurate they are, the less effect the weapons have, militarily speaking. Yeah, you'd have to think if you were a Russian pilot, that's a kamikaze mission. I mean, you know, you may as well get well, it they up. Fly, well, what they'll do is they'll fly, they'll fly high and they'll try to avoid uh, getting into areas where they get shot down, which usually means that whatever they do has no militarily effect. has little effect. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, what they tend to do is they'll release their, their bombs, but a lot of times they'll release them over civilian areas, and, and hence you have essentially more war crimes because of the indiscriminate use of, uh, of, of firepower. Well, I read that um, North Korea has been shooting off missiles. Do you think they're just flexing their muscles because of what Russia is doing, or are they planning on doing anything? Well, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. I, I remember the first couple of weeks of war, and, and I was on the air and we were talking about this, and I remember it was... Um, one of the things that North Korea is going to do something and it deals with Kim Jong-un, you know, he, he can't, he can't keep going without the world press paying more attention to him. You know, he has to do these provocative things in order to, uh, to, and at least in his mind, keep himself relevant. So some of the stuff with the missiles is it's a demonstration of capabilities. You know, it's to, it's to intimidate, you know, uh, South Korea, uh, Japan, the U.S., and others in the area. Uh, so he does this a lot. You know the the threats to you know start building you know to do nuclear uh, nuclear uh, nuclear testing underground. All this stuff. It's it's really it's kind of almost his way of self actualizing. Uh, it's to maintain his relevance. So you know with all the global press attention going to Ukraine, it was almost like he had to act out. And in fact, uh, I was. Uh, I was uh, on the air last night. We we're talking about what happened, what's happening now in Israel. Yes. And it's, you know, I, I mean, I don't know that a lot of these things are, are specifically coordinated, but it's almost as if, you know, with so many things happening in quick succession, it's almost as if there's been a strategic decision down there. And I'm sure if, if, uh, if Shin Ben or Mossad would, was here, they'd probably say, yeah, there's been a strategic decision. Um, but by the Palestinians to do things to get themselves back into the news to make themselves relevant again, and uh, and of course you know also to capitalize on the fact that you know President Biden has a trip coming over there. He's already uh, it, it, you know said that he might go to East East uh, Jerusalem, which is something of an entree to the Palestinians who have not gotten a lot of attention from the U.S. over recent years. Um, in fact, they had the funding cut off by the U.S. Uh, for quite a period of time, so um, so you see this. You'll see you'll see things happening in other parts of the world, but specifically the Middle East and and in the Korean Peninsula, which is really just almost to to remind people that they're still there and there still is an issue there. I was wondering why would the White House announce a trip like that? I mean, <laughs> to Israel, yeah, to Israel did. or to East Jerusalem, to uh, anywhere. Uh, Oh, it's it's pure political. You know, what's interesting is, you know, Mitch McConnell uh, led a congressional delegation to Kiev, right. and uh, they met with President Zelensky. That just that just happened uh, literally last night. That just happened. Um, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and Joe Biden had last weekend had gone into Ukraine, not to Kiev, but into Ukraine uh, as on Mother's Day and met with the first lady. Of uh, President Zelensky's wife um, uh, in in uh, Ukraine, and and there's you know there's been a number of uh, world leaders that have gone to uh, Ukraine. In that situation, um, you don't want you know it's been talked about the president going over there, the, the POTUS, the president of the United States, all the stuff that goes with him. Uh, you don't want to put him in an extremist situation. You know he just. That, that whole chain of command, that commander-in-chief thing over our strategic forces and everything else, you know, I can tell you across the board, you're like, no, that is not a good idea. And no, you don't sneak the president onto a train and zip him across uh, a war zone into Kiev. That's just not going to happen, you know. 
and 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 so some of these things. But but Israel, you know, U.S. presidents have gone to Israel. That's not really a that's not really a huge challenge. And for for arranging for the president to go into East Jerusalem, that that really isn't an overwhelming thing. Now, if he decided to go into the Gaza Strip, that would be a completely different thing. I can tell you, I would feel a high degree of assurance that the Secret Service would be would be having some very uh, very strong objection to some idea like that. But East Jerusalem, that's a tourist area. Uh, you know, the Israelis are in East Jerusalem all the time, and, and that's not something. I mean, they're that they're there. So, from a security perspective, the president going into East Jerusalem, not that tough. Certainly, going to Israel, not not a difficult thing to do. Uh, but there are some places like Ukraine, Kiev, where you're just not going to see the president going over there anytime soon. It's just it's too dangerous. And and by the way, you know, one of the things, one of the problems with the president going to some place, say like Kiev. Okay, how does he get in there? Well, the thought would be take Air Force One. Well, Air Force One is exposed the whole time it's going in there. So right. normally what they'll do is they'll put a combat air patrol around Air Force One. Once you put a combat air patrol around Air Force One, you've now got U.S. fighters flying in Ukrainian airspace that's being contested by Russia. And we have created the very situation we've been trying to avoid, which is our forces coming into direct conflict with Russian forces, yeah. and that could happen. So, you know, yeah, some places you're absolutely right. You just don't want the president announcing he's going there or even going there. Yeah, so, it's better but, to know after the fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay, I've, I've read that um, the United Kingdom has been sanctioning some of Putin's relatives his mistress, his ex-wife, his cousin, his cousin Igor. <laughs> I was just like, really? You've got a cousin named Igor? <laughs> okay. So how effective is this going to be? I mean, this is just happening now. How effective is this going to be, and in, in how does Putin feel about it? I, I don't know, but, you know, they, they, it is interesting the number of people, you, you know, you mentioned Igor, but I was thinking, yeah, I think they're going after Boris and Natasha, and they have a, a talk of moose and a flying squirrel working on that right now. But, um, but, uh, but um, yeah, well, what it is, is this is, this is, this really, it comes out of two, 2014. Uh, what was observed was uh, sanctions were put on a number of key uh, Russian oligarchs and officials. And so what they did was they just transferred their wealth to their family members and others who are close to them. And so they actually maintained uh, their their wealth status, if you will, their their financial and business control over their over their uh, enterprises. But they did it in a more distributed means. So uh, as far as the sanctions thing, uh, and this is a big change for Britain. You know, uh, Britain was uh, was. Uh, was I don't know if you want to say famous or notorious for for being the the go to city for Russian oligarchs. You know they uh, they basically were uh, that was the place where Russian oligarchs would park their money. They parked themselves, and uh, and and frankly, with all the money coming in from Russia, uh, you know the United Kingdom was rather you know accommodating towards this money coming because it was it was good for the British economies particularly sure. good for the London economy. Um, but but there's another side. There. I mean, that's a, that's a double-edged sword because you also have all these oligarchs there and others. So Great Britain is, is cracking down on this in a great deal. And, uh, you know, interestingly, going after his ex-wife and, and going after his mistress, uh, his primary mistress, and that gets into a whole other discussion, but... Um, his most famous mistress, I should say. Um, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that the the mistress sanction regime is done. They may add more names to that by the time it's all finished. But um, but yeah, but they're going after him because that's that's the way he hides his wealth, he hides his money. You know, Putin is estimated to you know he does he has this thing where he says, "I am just a humble civil servant and I make a hundred and forty thousand dollars a year, and uh, I am serving the Russian people." Okay, that's what he puts out there. That's his propaganda machine. 
It's estimated by most experts Putin's personal wealth may be about $200 billion. Wow. Um, that's how much money he's ripped off. So, you know, when those Russian troops are, uh, are, are, are going into uh, Ukraine and their tires blow out because they never replaced the tires and their engine seizes because they didn't do maintenance and half of the artillery rounds don't fire because they're duds, well, the money that was supposed to go pay for stuff like that went somewhere else. And it wasn't all Putin. It went into a lot of these oligarchs' pockets. It is interesting that Putin, who is, you know, of all the corrupt Russian officials, was the premier corrupt Russian official in charge of this uh, klept- kleptocracy uh, that is the Russian government. It is ironic that his biggest initiative, for lack of a better term, uh, is is basically falling apart, and it's falling apart in large part because of the kleptocratic practices of his regime, to include him personally. You know, you you, you know they they basically stole the Russian, they stole the Russian military, stole from the Russian military, but also stole from the Russian people, stole blind, and uh, and now they've got themselves into a big war, and they can't win it because of all the corrupt things that they did before to fleece all those funds. So I think that's, that may be something that we look at for a lot of years. Hence, uh, it will be one of those stunning things when we look at, you know, corruption, you know, government corruption. And, and I do that. I go around the world and, you know, I work with various different countries on things. And, um, one of the things that's always, you know, when we're doing this, we always have to be careful how we phrase it. But I will say that you can go to countries where there's a lot of government corruption. And when you close the door and you talk to the officials there, They'll be the first to say, yeah, we got a lot of government corruption here, you know, and they'll be the first to admit it. And they're not quite sure how to address it. But one of the things that, that we need to recall is historically, when regimes are extremely corrupt, they lose legitimacy in the eyes of the people and they just don't last. And, you know, Afghanistan, what was the, one of the biggest problems with the U.S. backed regime? It was seen by the Afghan people as extremely corrupt. South Vietnam. It was seen by the Vietnamese people as extremely corrupt. And you can go through, you can go throughout, you know, Cuba before Castro took over, same thing. So, you know, that's just, it's going to be one of those things where I think this will be one of the more remarkable moments in looking at governmental corruption and how it impacted a country uh, in such a, such a strategic way. What do you think once Putin is gone, what kind of a government will Russia have? Is it going to be the same or do you think... Somebody with a brain is going to come in and take over. Gosh, I, I wish I knew. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, just, I don't know. Yeah. That, it, that's a question everyone's asking themselves. What will it be? Um, I, what, I, what I will say is this. I, I don't know. And, and I don't think, look, I, I don't think you're going to see the, the forces of democracy and freedom sweep over the Kremlin. All okay. right. I don't think it's going to be Bastille Day. All right. In uh, uh, in Moscow. But but what I do see is this. There is there is a basic political economic reality, which is whatever the next regime presuming. And I'm going to go with the presumption. I, I don't think the Ukrainians are far off saying that Putin's days are numbered. All right. And I, I would imagine it would be somebody high enough up in the current government that they would control some levers of power. So it's not going to be something completely, you know, completely divorced from what we see currently. However, to get the international sanctions uh, dropped against Russia, to get Russia back into the global economy, back into the community of nations, they're going to have to make enormous changes in governance in order to be acceptable on the international stage. And one of the big problems, and it's taking a while, one of the big problems they're going to run into is that the major exports that they, that, they, that they rely on for revenue, oil and gas, Europe is weaning itself away from Russia. Yeah. And they're going to want to, you know, I can tell you Russians at some point would want to turn that back on. Uh, they're not going to be able to do, do that as long as there is a Putin-esque type regime even if it's not Putin, but a Putin-esque type regime still controlling Russia. And so I don't know where that will go. 
I, I don't know. But it's I think be they're interesting. going to. Yeah, I think they're going to try and create a. I think there'll be a real incentive to create a regime that looks legitimate in the eyes of the world. And and that's why I keep, I keep thinking we're going to pop back into the uh, uh, time machine and go back to 1992, politically think politically speaking. Um, there's a very good chance it may look like what happened um, in 1992 after the fall of the Soviet Union. It'll be a little confused. It'll be a, a, a you know, there'll be a lot of moving parts, if you will. Uh, but you know, if we can if we can coalesce. If the Western alliance and NATO and the European Union and everybody can coalesce and really put the attention on to helping Russia develop into a, you know, a, something other than what it is now, uh, there might be an opportunity to, to do what we didn't do back in the early 90s, which a lot of historians and others feel that we missed a, an enormous opportunity there yeah. to, to really change Russia. And, and maybe, but now we're projecting way forward because right as of today, Putin's still in power. Russian forces are still fighting in Ukraine. So, you know. Okay, Putin's help. I have, everybody said, oh, he's going to go in for surgery. And I'm like, okay, slip that doctor a C note and see what happens. But what's going on with Putin's health? Is there any legitimacy to people say he's got cancer, he's got blood cancer, he's got pe- Parkinson's disease, or, you know, there's just all these stories coming out. What's going on? Well, uh, and, and I think, Sherry, you saw the uh, seminar that I did online where we talked about Putin's health, and I showed some of the stuff where, you know, he met with Lukashenko before the uh, uh, before the invasion, and he, he's in his office, and the way he's moving, it clearly looks like he has symptoms or signs of potential Parkinson's. There was a meeting he had with Shoigu, his uh, defense minister, and the way he's gripping the table, his involuntary tapping of his foot, his body posture, everything looks like he's suffering from something, Parkinson's. He just, and, and he looks, and many have said many times, he looks puffy yeah. as if they're uh, giving him steroids to counteract treatment for cancer. Right. All right. And, and there's been a number of cancer things. The latest one they say is he has blood cancer. I've heard he had thyroid cancer. I've heard that's a third different type of cancer that he's supposed to have. Um, I heard he had leukemia a couple months back. That was a widely rumored thing in, in Kiev that uh, Ukrainian officials thought he was being treated for leukemia. Uh, with that said, I don't know if you saw the stuff Monday uh, at the uh, during the Victory Day Parade. He comes out there. He walks out there. He literally bounces up the steps, greets all the old uh, World War II veterans and all these other veterans up on the on the uh, podium, uh, all these dignitaries, officials, just like a you know an energetic Western style politician. He gets up and gives a speech, and then there's a part where he does this long walk with uh, with various people who are holding the pictures of World War II veterans in their hands and sometimes holding flowers. It's a very long walk. He's walking. He looks able-bodied. He's joking. He's smiling with everybody. And it's like all those symptoms that we've seen in previous videos had disappeared. I don't know. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know. It's so confusing. You you hear so many different things. You don't know what's real. But Mm -hmm. he's still there, and he's still doing what he's doing. And I think most of it's ego. He he can't realize that he's not going to win this war. Mm Mm-hmm. I think he's, I think he's, you know, 27,000 killed in action uh, for Russia is the Ukrainian estimate right now. And uh, you can multiply that by by two or three. So uh, in terms of wounded, surrendered, deserted on top of that. So you got you're probably looking at potentially over 100,000 Russians that have been taken out of combat one way or other since this thing began. It's an enormous number. You know, uh, 1,200 tanks have been destroyed, almost 3,000 armored personnel carriers. It's just stunning when you look at the losses that Russia has taken on this. And uh, and yet they still keep going. And, uh, I mean, it, that's what Russia has always been famous for. It's just brutal disregard for, the, uh, for, their own, for their own forces and their own personnel. And we're seeing that, you know, exemplified 
in a major way with this conflict. So, um, and how do you justify that to the Russian people? Uh, they lie. But, you know, Monday he had to admit that they had suffered huge losses. He did say that in his speech. He didn't say a lot uh, of things, but he did, he did admit huge losses. And he wouldn't have said that unless he knew that, you know, even that big Russian propaganda machine has limits. Yeah, that's and, true. And you know, there is that Mothers of Russia thing, which is you can only hide this stuff so much. And uh, the Mothers of Russia will speak. And when their sons don't come home from the war, um, they have a strong voice. And this was one of the major movements that led to the fall of the Soviet Union. And that was in the aftermath of the Afghan war, where, uh, where actually less than half or about half of, uh, maybe not less than half, but about half of the, uh, uh, let's say this, the Ukrainian losses right now are assessed as almost twice what the, uh, total losses in the Afghanistan war were for Russia. And that war lasted over a decade. This thing's only been going for about three months. So, you know, today, you know, along with the reports of the coup and everything else, um, you know, the uh, head of uh, Ukrainian intelligence said this war was going to go out throughout the summer. So if they've lost this now and we're coming into the summer months where it'll probably be very pitched war fighting, uh, who knows? By the time we get to September, everything we're looking at now could have could have doubled in wow. terms of Russian losses. And I don't know how they hide that because if those losses double, then you're talking the number of Russians killed um, in in uh, in the Ukraine over what a six or seven month period would be the number would equal or be greater than the number of Americans lost in the entire Vietnam War, and Certainly, that had huge political implications in the U.S. So, Well, we are actually out of time. I want to thank you again for bringing us up to date and clearing up some of the propaganda that's going on there. And wish you a happy weekend. All right, you too, Sherry, and thanks for having me on. It's been okay. a real pleasure. Okay, until next week, shop local and stay safe.